Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 47. And he, Jesus, was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging unto every word he said. Chapter 20. On one of the days while he was teaching, the people in the temple and, the, and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will also ask you a question and you tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? They reasoned among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, last week, you'll remember, we were talking about the cleansing of the temple. Jesus had purged the temple of both the animals that were in the outer court or what was commonly called the court of the Gentiles because it had become a stockade. And he had also purged the temple of those who were exchanging in a changing of money. Uh, He ran them out of business. He turned their tables over, spilled the coins. And the reason for this was several fold. But one was that the temple was the place where God was to be worshipped in spirit and truth. You have to understand, young people, that the name of God was... Uh, revealed most clearly in these days in the temple. It's not like today where the spirit of God has been poured out after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You have to understand that to worship God publicly was to go to the temple. That's where God's sacrifices were made. That's where the name of God was. That's where God's presence was in the Holy of Holies. The temple was very important because the temple was teaching the people about the Lord Jesus before Jesus came. The temple is what we call a type. You often hear me use that word type or typology. What does that mean? What it means is that God gave symbols to his people in the time of their um, immaturity, if you will, to teach them about Christ, to teach them about who Jesus was to be and what Jesus would do. You have to understand that they did not have all the revelation of God that you and I have today. We we know clearly about Jesus Christ today. They did not know clearly. They had less understanding. They had less knowledge. The revelation wasn't as crystal clear as it is for us. Now, it was sufficiently clear that they were saved by grace through faith. But they had to look at sacrifices of animals. They had to see the construction of the temple. 
Uh, that was the, if you will, the incarnation of God on earth. But with the coming of Christ himself, who became a man and now dwelt among them, not in a building made with hands, but in human flesh. We see that that's a far superior revelation of God to us so that Jesus could say, if you've seen me, he said to Philip, you've seen the father. So Jesus and his and his coming is far superior to the physical temple. But until that time, that's all they had was the temple. But what had happened, boys and girls? Well, the temple had become corrupt. There was a corruption. And now the outer court, which should have been filled with people from other countries coming to hear the word of God and to worship God, now was filled with animals. It showed they had a very low view of what we call the Great Commission. And their hearts were hard. They didn't care about the salvation of the nations. We see that also um, they had made it a place of, of profit rather than a place of worship. And so Jesus was reforming the temple, if you will, cleansing the temple. To show the people that God was to be treated as holy and that the temple was to be a house of prayer. Now, with Jesus Christ having come and died on the cross for our sins in place of the animals and having been raised by God on the third day, according to the scriptures and seated at the right hand of the father in heaven. Now, what is Christ doing? He is building the new covenant temple. He's building the new covenant temple with you. You're the stones, Peter says, you're the living stones. You, you have the spirit of God within you now. Now it's not dwelling in a merely a building. It's, it's it, the spirit of God is dwelling in you. And now you no longer have to worship in a, in a single place. We're glad for that. It would get expensive if we had to take it, get a Delta ticket every week and go over to Jerusalem to worship. Now we worship where we live. And God is pleased when we gather in the name of Jesus Christ to fill his temple with his spirit. And so we even as what we're doing here now, the spirit of God is in our midst. This is why private devotions is not enough. We want you to read your Bible. We want you to pray at home and as a family. But this is what makes the Lord's Day worship so important is it's the public gathering of the stones of Christ. The new covenant temple and now the spirit of God is poured out here. So Jesus has done all this. And of course, this creates tremendous controversy. The Pharisees, the scribes, the priests, the leadership of Jerusalem is upset with Jesus. He, he has overturned their tables. He's driven the animals out. You can just imagine hundreds Thousands of animals pouring out into the streets of Jerusalem, out of the temple. And they want to know, by what authority do you do this? Basically, it's as we would say. In our own culture, who do you think you are? And that's what they're essentially saying to Jesus. Who do you think you are? So what I want to do is I want to look at this section now in four parts. Normally, I try to give you three. I'm going to give you a four today. 
The first three come from verses 47 and 48. Just two verses are going to derive the first three points. And then the final point is coming from the story of verses 1 through 8. And here are the four points. Number one, we're going to see the teaching of Christ in verse 47. Two, we're going to see the opposition to Christ. Number three, we're going to see the public reception of Christ's preaching. And then number four, verses one to eight in the next chapter, the authority for Christ. The teaching of Christ, the opposition to Christ, the public reception of Christ and the authority of Christ. Those are going to be our four thoughts for today. Let's look at our text again. Look with me at verse 47. I'm going to derive the first two points just from verse 47 alone. The first one is coming from 47a, and then I'll call it the other one 47b. Verse 47a, and he, Jesus, was teaching daily in the temple. But the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men among the people were trying to destroy him. But notice the first sentence there. In verse 47 by Luke, he was teaching daily in the temple. Now, I want to emphasize that single sentence there because I want you to consider this is the last week of Jesus's life and public ministry. This is the we're coming toward the end of Jesus's ministry. Luke is going to spend the remainder of these chapters all the way to chapter 24 on the end of, of Jesus' ministry. Most of it will be the last week leading up to the crucifixion here. And what is it that Luke tells us Jesus is doing with us last week? He is preaching and teaching the word of God in the temple. Even as I was preparing this, I thought to myself, what would we be doing with our last week? If we knew this was our last week, this week, what would we do with this? Well, Jesus spent it Publicly preaching and teaching. Jesus is seeking to bring as many into heaven with him as he can. And I think here we see again something that we've seen prior. And that is the priority of preaching. The preaching of the word of God is the ministry of Christ. And that is, I think, the ministry of the church. It is primarily preaching and teaching. Now, that's not the only thing we do, but it has always got to be the priority of the church. The church derives her her strength and her energy through God blessing, through the preaching of his word. It's where we are fed. It's where we are nourished. It's where we're built up along with the sacraments. And it needs to be the priority of your minister. It needs to be the priority of every minister to serve the word publicly or privately from house to house. Now, there are associate ministers who may not be in the pulpit, but even their ministry is, is primarily a ministry of the word. If it, even if it be in a setting such as counseling, it, it is the ministry of the word to those that are in need. It is the ministry of the word to those that maybe are in the hospital or something like that. But it always must be the ministry of the word. This is why, boys and girls, when I come over sometimes for the pastoral visit, and I know, much to your own uh, disappointment at times, it's not just a social visit. And, and you say, why does Pastor Boyd have to come over and ask us questions? Well, because we're talking about the Word, aren't we? We're, we're talking about the things that God's Word says and, and things that are important in that Word. And we want to see how well you're digesting that Word. And, and, and just like any 
good parent wants you to have a healthy, balanced meal. We don't want you eating Cheetos every day only. Right. We, we want you to uh, grow up and and be healthy. And that means having a well-balanced diet. And and we do the same in the church. We want to see you spiritually grow to a healthy and mature Christian. And, and so we come and we check and we we uh, teach from house to house as well as publicly here. And this is the, the great need of our day. This is the great need, I think, of our culture. Uh, we need more preaching and teaching, not less preaching and teaching. And we need better preaching and teaching. If, if there is going to be revival and reformation in the community, if there's going to be revival and reformation uh, in our nation, I think combined with good pastoral oversight and good order and church discipline, uh, we need preaching. We need more services and not fewer services. We need more churches to be planted in communities that don't have good preaching. We, we need to be trying to get more churches into both the cities, the great cities, but also on the byways. Uh, we need more ministers, more missionaries, more teachers. Jesus has told us that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He said, pray to the Lord of the harvest. We need more preachers, more teachers. More people to go overseas. This is how Christ is building his church. It's, it's through the through the word. Paul tells us this in the book of Romans. He said, you know, blessed are the feet of them that bring good news. How is anyone going to come to faith in Jesus Christ if, if there is not a preacher said? Uh, they, they, there is not a sufficiency in general revelation to save anybody. Looking at the trees and the birds and human beings and the clouds and the stars at night and the sun by day will not save you. You cannot come to an understanding of our salvation. You cannot come to know Christ simply by looking at the at the creation. We need more than that. We need more than general revelation. We need the Bible. The Bible itself says that it is a two edged sword. It is. It is powerful. It pierces to the joint and to the marrow. It deals with the inner man. That's why people will sit under the word and they hear the word. And I've, I've had this said to me. I, I know every minister who preaches the word has at some point had this said to me. How, do you, how did you know to, to preach that to me? I didn't. I have no idea. I'm just praying and I'm studying the word and the spirit drives it home. I'm not going out of my way to you know, pigeonhole you and you and you. I'm sitting here bringing the text. The Bible says that, that uh, the word brings life with the spirit. You think of Ezekiel and the dead, dry bones uh, that are scattered in the valley. And what does God tell Ezekiel to do? He tells Ezekiel to preach, to prophesy. You know that. A lot of times we have a misunderstanding about the prophets. We think of prophets, well, they're people who, who predict the future. Well, prophets would do that. There's a sense. But the, the, their predictions are not the chief article of, of their job. It's the preaching of the word. And, and yeah, they, they will speak of things sometimes about the pertaining to the future. 
under the inspiration of the spirit. But that was it was a preaching of the word. It was a preaching of Christ. They also preached the law. They preached conviction. They preached repentance. They preached faith in, in Christ. They preached the covenant. You know, Moses said that uh, when he gave the people the law of God, he said, this is your life. This, 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 is, this is how you live. Jesus affirmed that, didn't he? And he said, man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes forth from God. Um, Paul, the apostle, preached the word in new fields. You have the first missionary journey and then the second is a little bit bigger. And then the third missionary journey a little bit farther away. And then by the end in Acts 28, there's Paul in Rome, finally preaching the gospel. This is how the kingdom has spread for the last 2000 years is through the, the word of God, people taking the word. Whether uh, it be um, Boniface taking it to the Germanic tribes and cutting down the tree of Thor and then preaching. That's pretty bold. And then after he chops down their their God's tree, he, he preaches the Lord Jesus Christ. To the people. Maybe it's some of the famous missionaries who preached uh, to the Native Americans. Think of David Brainerd. Maybe it's to the Indians in East India, such as William Carey. Uh, this is the way that the word has always gone out. It's through, through the missionaries preaching the word. Paul told Timothy, preach the word, Timothy. Show yourself a workman who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word. We need to pray for more preaching, better preaching. Pray for more ministers. We need to pray for more reformed churches. I was when I was out uh, for my study week at Stanford, I uh, met with various uh, ministers while I was out there, and some of whom I had never met before and. And uh, it was interesting when I met with one of the uh, OP ministers who uh, is the pastor in Sunnyvale, California, which is right next to Palo Alto, where Stanford is just about 15 minutes away. Um, he made a comment that really stuck with me on, on that uh, time away. And he said that we treat churches within our denomination and in our circles, the reform churches, as almost like they're fast food franchises. That we can only have one every 60 miles, you know, less lest we compete too much with each other. Uh, and he said, you, you know, he's making the point, it, it shouldn't be that way. We, we, should, have, we should be seeking a multiplication uh, of reformed churches in, in a given area. This, it, we want more preaching. Um, this, is, this was the model of Geneva. I mean, it wasn't, don't think Geneva just had like one church and there was Calvin. There was, there was a... A plethora of churches in Geneva committed to the Reformation. Uh, we see this also in Scotland. This was the model of Presbyterianism in Scotland. But here it, we, we have gotten to the point where we feel like we can, you know, we can have multiple McDonald's, multiple Chick-fil-A's, but we can't have multiple reform congregations in a given area. Um, 
we, we need a reformation in West Georgia. We need our region is rife with Arminianism, a lack of church discipline, a lack of expository preaching. And we, we need to think about multiplying our preaching and our teaching stations. We have uh, over I, I didn't know this. I looked this up last night. I, I went to the Internet, so it's got to be true. Um, <laughs> uh, we, we have over 70,000 people in Troop County. I had no idea. I, I thought it was around 50,000. But, but but according to the listing by the state of Georgia, over 70,000 people in Troop County alone. And then I looked at the other surrounding counties. Meriwether's got 21,000. Harris got 34,000. Um, and, and there's one conservative reformed church just in, in that population alone. That's over 100,000, 120,000 people. And, and this is it. But it doesn't have to be that way. I did look up just for the sake of interest. Uh, look up Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania, where the RPCNA has Geneva College. They have a population of 8,000. It's a quarter of our city's population, 8,000 people. And they have four congregations there. Covenant College, I looked them up. They have 22 PCA churches within driving distance of the college in Chattanooga. 22 PCA churches. That's what it's supposed to look like. That's what it's supposed to look like. There's supposed to be a reformation of, of, and there's supposed to be a, a multiplicity of churches preaching the word on the same page theologically. Things uh, I think in this country and in this culture are going to get worse if the preaching does not significantly improve in evangelicalism. We need more of the Bible, not less. And I know we're committed to the evening service, and I'm not saying this for us here so much, but I, I will say if you're visiting here, whether you're listening online to this sermon right now, we need evening services. You should be demanding your church to have evening preaching. Uh, I think Dr. Godfrey, former president of Westminster West, is absolutely right. People should be up in arms if their minister is not preaching a second service in the day, whether it be the afternoon or the evening. There should be a riot taking place among the people of God. This is the really disturbing thing is that the, the people are satisfied with little preaching. The people are content with it. That's part of the problem. There, there has been a loss of a hunger and a thirst for righteousness and for the word of God. And we're satisfied with so little. Sinclair Ferguson has said that this is the problem with evangelicalism is we're not discouraged enough. <laughs> we lament about things, but he said we're not really discouraged enough. So Jesus, in his final week, he's teaching daily, it says, in the temple but as Jesus was teaching daily, secondly, we see the opposition to Christ growing. The opposition to Christ was growing. This should not surprise us wherever the spirit of God is poured out and wherever there is a revival of preaching and teaching. There also many times is opposition satanically stirred up. And here the Jewish leadership 
is being stirred up against our Lord. As the spirit often is pleased to bless and bring conversions and growth in grace. Satan is trying to ruin and discredit with controversy and excesses and immorality and temptation. The work of God. Satan is always following behind the spirit trying to ruin what God is doing. We see this all over the Bible. David is cheered for slaying his ten thousands, but soon is in exile because of an evil spirit upon Saul and Saul seeking to kill David. You think of Elijah's great victory at Carmel and it's followed by an outbreak of persecution by Jezebel. The Apostle Paul sees converts in the synagogue and then soon there is opposition to Paul, both among Jews and Gentiles. Paul had to be lowered at night, boys and girls, you remember from a a basket from the roof or from the wall, rather. Uh, You remember that Paul was in prison. Paul once was stoned with rocks, people throwing rocks at him, leaving him for dead. He must have been knocked unconscious. He didn't die, but they thought he was dead. Um, Paul said multiple times he received 39 lashes. And we should expect that if the Lord blesses, that Satan also will seek to stir up opposition to our work. This Peter said, this is very important for you young people to understand and learn early. Peter says, don't think it's something strange. When you have people opposing you and you don't seem to be doing anything against them. You're not bothering them. You're not being mean to them. You're trying to love them. Peter says, don't think it's strange when they treat you badly. When they when they begin to say things against you and they speak against you. um, Maybe they, they whisper to their friends about you. And and Peter is, is saying this is common. This is the common experience of, of the believer. This is the common experience of the Christian because it was the common experience of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Jesus has said, if 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 the teacher is treated this way, how much more the, the, the follower, the, the disciple, we're not above our master. And if they treated him poorly, they will treat us poorly. They have more reason to treat us poorly (laughs) because we actually are sinners and we do make mistakes. I I think I counted over 10 former members who have defriended me from Facebook. Uh, People who sat right where you are sitting right now. And it'll come from surprising quarters. It'll come from places you didn't expect it to come from. It'll it'll hurt. And you just have to realize that's part of what it was. I mean, Jesus knew it better than anybody. One of his own twelve betrays him. You, O oh man, with whom we walked. To the house of the Lord together, we who broke bread, you have lifted up your heel against me. Jesus knew this better than all of us. Uh, We may find that there's opposition from other churches in our community. If the Lord is pleased to pour out his spirit and bring revival and reformation 
Don't think that everybody who calls himself a Christian or every church is going to be pleased. There may come opposition from governing authorities. Opposition may come from the Internet. Now, now you can now you can lob bombs at people, you know, that you haven't even met on the Internet. <laughs> you can write nasty articles uh, about other people's ministries now. Uh, from afar. And, and Satan, you know, is, is more than pleased to help light that arrow and send it flying. Uh, opposition may come locally. Uh, Ephesians 6 says we're in a spiritual battle. Uh, we, we are at war. Now, there, that's not to say that the warfare, you know, is always continuously felt. God graciously gives us reprieves. Even from the battle and gives us many times green pastures and still waters to delight in. But but there is a war going on and we, we need to arm ourselves with the armor of God that is listed there in Ephesians six. We are told elsewhere that we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. We wage war against the devil and against demons, the things that are unseen um, in the book of Revelation. Uh, we're told that the devil, after persecuting the woman, goes after after the offspring of the woman, which is you and me, the church uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is preaching the word, but the opposition is growing. And of course, this is going to climax in the arrest, the trial, the prosecution and the death of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus says that if any man follows me, he must take up his cross. Also, we have to be prepared to die as well, maybe physically die. But in many ways it won't be. But we need to be prepared for the humiliation of being united to Jesus, to being united to one who was crucified. But notice here, Luke does tell us something encouraging And that is, even though Jesus is preaching and being opposed by the leadership, there is a public reception. This is the encouraging thing, that there are people being brought to faith and built up in the faith. In verse 48, Luke says, and they could not find anything that they might do for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. That is, Jesus' public teaching and preaching is meeting with some seemingly outward success at the temple. People are gathering. People are listening. The seed is being sown. The seed is being watered. People are are coming to life. There is uh, germination taking place. No doubt many are, are converted. And those who are converted are built up in the faith. Now, Jesus would never, boys and girls, you have to understand, Jesus would never publicly really see the success, quote unquote, I'm putting the air quotes up there, um, of his apostles. And and that's for reasons I've already explained to you. The spirit has not yet been given. Peter is not necessarily by nature a better preacher than Jesus. Okay, Uh, but Peter had an advantage that Jesus did not have in his in his public earthly ministry. And that is that while Jesus had the spirit upon himself, the spirit had not been poured out upon those that were listening to him. Now, the spirit was pleased to reveal things such as like when we see, you know, uh, Peter confessing Jesus Christ as the son of God. And, and what does Jesus say? Flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but 
But my father, my the spirit has helped you understand who I am. And so the spirit would do that. But you have to understand the spirit in the ministry of Christ is a trickle compared to what's coming. Remember the, the picture that God gives us in the book of Ezekiel? And you have a picture of the temple and out of the temple, it looks like there's a little leak. It's just a little water trickling out, almost like there's this, you know, kind of little something's wrong with the washing machine or something. You see this little water coming out. But as you follow it, what happens? Well, the, the water becomes increasing uh, as you go down and, and it becomes actually this river that Ezekiel says no man can ford. It be, and it's a, what is it? It's a picture of the spirit of God, I think, in the new covenant. That the spirit that was trickling out of the old covenant temple becomes a flood. And that after Christ is raised and the temple is destroyed, you know, the spirit of God is on the, the people of God in a way that it wasn't in the earthly ministry of Jesus. And that's why Peter can preach a single sermon much, you know, much to my maybe my my own jealousy can preach a single sermon and 3000 people are converted. I mean, that's. It, you know, it's not because Peter was the greatest preacher ever. He certainly is not greater than Jesus, but he was preaching Christ under the spirit. The spirit had been poured out. That's why Jesus said, stay in Jerusalem, stay in Jerusalem, stay in Jerusalem after I'm gone. Because I'm going to pour out my spirit on on the church there and. And there they are gathered in the upper room and the spirit is poured out. And Peter preaches this crowd gathers when they hear all the rushing wind and they see the people speaking in tongues. And Peter preaches and 3000 come to Christ. We don't know what a day may bring. And, and this is the always the exciting and encouraging thing. The spirit of the Lord may indeed visit us and we should long for it and hope for it. We should pray for it. And, and we may see. It may not be 3,000, but it could be a few dozen. Uh, we have records in, in the history of this own con- of this country um, that where we have seen churches that have been going along and slowly increasing, but then we'll get a big harvest in a, in a short span of a few years because of an outpouring of the Spirit of God. God was pleased to come. Sinclair Ferguson has described it as a father who... Uh, walks with his young child in the park and he's walking near the child. But sometimes the father is overcome with the desire just to hug his child and will come down and grab that child and squeeze that child, pick him up off the ground, then set him back down on his way. And the, and the spirit of God will do the, some, the same with with his church at times. He he is always with us, but sometimes the spirit of God will come down and grab us in new ways that are not. Maybe ordinary, but extraordinary. And so we, we should be prepared for the possibility that the spirit would enlarge our numbers. Christ has purchased the Holy Spirit. Think about that. Jesus has purchased the spirit. What a tremendous argument we have with the father in prayer. Jesus has earned that spirit for us, the church. Why not give Jesus what he's earned? To pray to the father that the. You know, the, the Lord has been given all these promises. God has promised Jesus the nations. God has promised that Jesus would have dominion from the river to the ends of the earth. God has promised that Jesus would have a kingdom greater than that of, of David and Solomon. He's promised that Christ would have every tribe, tongue and nation. 
And, and what a tremendous thing for us to be able to go to the Father and say, Father, you promised this to Jesus. It's not it's just a promise to me. It's not just a promise to us. It's a promise to Jesus. The Father has promised the Son these things. And we are coming and saying, for the sake of Jesus, fulfill your promise. You're a God who cannot lie. You are a God who, who is yes and amen. So there was this public reception that I think was maybe a foretaste of what was to come when the spirit was poured out. I want to move on to the final point, the authority. Where does all this come from? The the authority for Christ doing these things, the, the cleansing of the temple and the preaching of the word. The authority, of course, comes from the father. Comes from God, Jesus being God's son. Now we see here in verse one through eight, Jesus is approached by the leadership and they tell us, they say, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. And Jesus said, well, let me answer your question with a question. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? That is, what was the authority given to John? You tell me that. Well, they don't want to answer that question because if they answer it affirmatively that John's authority did come from God and we are, we know that it did we're told that in the prologue of John's gospel uh, we we know that the authority of John's ministry came from God John had a special conception in answer to prayer of aged uh, couple of an aged couple and he was a nazarite from birth and the ministry clearly was from God And the authority was from God. But they don't want to say that because if they do, well, then they have to acknowledge that what John said was the word of God. And what did what did John say? He said, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And they don't want to deny it because they're cowards and they don't want to be honest. Liberals never want to be honest. They, They always want to hide the truth of what they believe. And they still do that today, even though many of them are in the ministry today. They don't tell the congregation what they really believe, because they know if they really told the people what they really believed, the people would reject them. Many of them would. So they use the same you know, terminology when they speak about Jesus being divine or the son of God or the resurrection. They'll use the terms so that they can obfuscate, that the people will think, well, when my minister uses the word resurrection, he's using it the way I believe the word is to be used. Or when he speaks of Jesus being the son of God, he's using it as Jesus is God of God. And the minister is not in many of those cases. He, he believes something entirely different. But so long as his people think that that's what he thinks, they play this game. And I think also there are people who who want to be bamboozled um, themselves for whatever weird, strange reasons. I think they're in denial or something. Um, And but anyway, so they don't they don't want to be honest. Um, And and so they say to Jesus, well, we don't know. Uh, We we don't know. And then so Jesus says, well, well, then I'm not going to tell you. (laughs) I'm not going to. Tell you, if you if you do not already know that which is clear, then my saying it one more time isn't going to help you because the problem isn't uh, isn't the revelation. It is you. Your ability not to hear with ears that can hear your ability not to believe that which is clearly manifest 
as being from God. Let me close here by saying this. Our authority as a church also is from God. The Apostle Paul. People want to put a wedge between Jesus and Paul. And we shouldn't do that. Paul said that he was an apostle sent by God, called by God, called by Christ. And therefore, that which Paul wrote was inspired by the Spirit and is every bit the Word of God as Jesus' red letters are the Word of God. And we, are, we derive our authority from the Word of God. We're not a political group. We're not a social action group. We are the church of the living God. And we offer salvation freely to anyone who will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where our authority comes from. It's a derived authority. It is not an innate authority. The church derives her authority from the Word of God. The Word does not derive its authority from the church, as the Roman Catholics teach. The church derives her authority from the Word. Amen. Let's pray.